Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. I'll be reading from the ESV. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. Well, good morning. You ready to study your Bibles? Okay, good morning. You ready to study your Bibles? Yes. All right. It's, it's fair to talk back when I ask questions, I promise. Uh, so if you are already at Mark 1 uh, or in your scripture journal, I believe it's page 10, I just want to frame up our time together. Uh, we, we've, we've taken sort of a break in our series, and so we pick back up this morning. So if it's your first time here or you're wondering why are they jumping in the middle of a text where Jesus is casting out demons, this is a bit much on a Sunday. I feel you. Uh, but we're walking through Mark's gospel, uh, uh, which is the first gospel that we have that was written. Uh, and, and Mark is uh, 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 this guy whose life is a sermon all in its own. He goes from failed disciple of Paul to son of Peter. And it's wonderful to see when you look closely at the author of this gospel, uh, just how uh, uh, beautiful you can go from failing men to God never failing you. And so we, that's where like, we began in this journey, looking at Mark and looking at why he begins and, and wrote this, uh, uh, this gospel, this, this work of Jesus's uh, life. But this word gospel is translated quite literally to good news. And the idea of a gospel is not to the original uh, uh, hearers and readers of this letter is not unfamiliar to them. The, the most famous gospel that's not in the Bible is the Pax Romana of the gospel of Julius Caesar. A gospel was something given to the people, a good news, a letter of good news that a king or an emperor has come and you are now subjects of him. And so when these Roman Christians are reading this gospel of Jesus Christ, there's already a contextual weight in the title of what they are beginning to read. And so we have to feel that too. And we feel this because this gospel is that the true king, a real, wonderful, saving, redeeming king is now coming to be Lord over our lives. Our king, he didn't 
come to be served as is the way of people in power and high places. No, but he came to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. And although Mark wrote with a very specific audience in mind, as I said, the Jewish and Gentile Roman Christians suffering under the persecution of the emperor Nero, this work is very much for us today. You have to see this, family, before we begin, that what we have in our hands is not some work of fiction, but an actual, true account of redemptive history. Something both historic and historical, something that took place, existed in a space and time, and something that transcends time and space. This is what we have before us. Mark's gospel moves quickly with accuracy, but not so much in chronology. Mark is not really concerned with a, like a timeline of very specific name, dates, and places, but rather he gives us these accounts, the words and actions of Jesus in rapid succession to sort of serve his purpose in writing. Mark wants to cover ground, but he wants to cover very specific ground. He's writing very honestly, to convince you that this man, Jesus, is indeed the Son of God, that he is indeed the King of all, and that he is bringing with him a kingdom all his own. This King, Jesus, is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy enough to satisfy all of your needs. And where we pick up in this text, as Alice just read, Jesus is very much in the early stages of his ministry. And what we get on display is his kingly authority. His kingly authority. That Jesus has the power and the right to give out commands, to call for obedience, to speak and to teach, to rebuke and correct. And Jesus is going to exemplify for us here. He's going to express that authority in word and in action. So the title for this morning is Kingly Authority, and our two points is word and action. So would you pray with me as I pray for you? As we together hear from God this morning, God, we look to you for help. We look to you for help because what we have before us, we cannot hear without ears to hear it. What we have before us, we cannot see without eyes to see it. What we have before us, we cannot understand without you giving us wisdom. So God, would you do that this morning? Would you make clear to us the very ideas of your word? Would you speak to us? And would you help us see that you are able to satisfy with all authority the very needs and desires of our heart? God, we love you and we need you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born in 1834 in London. He is widely known as a gifted 
uh, speaker, a very powerful preacher. He knew he was known for that in his day and posthumously. And he, it's his sermons were just so deep. It is said his sermons were so rich and so deep. Uh, and full of conviction, and they were orated so powerfully that he would leave the congregation, as one reporter put it, spellbound. You could read for yourself the manuscripts of his sermons, and you would see that they are drenched in conviction and truth. He spoke with passion and authority. But although known as the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon was more than just a preacher. He pastored in London for 38 years. He founded a college, began a global charity effort. He wrote so many books and hymns. He advocated very uh, hard and very uh, unpopularly against the uh, uh, against slavery in America. And by the time he was 50, he either founded or conducted in 66 organizations. He loved people and labored to win them for Jesus and build them up in the faith. He was a man of word and deed. He's a man whose limited earthly authority was so dedicated to the glory and supremacy of the one who has ultimate authority in King Jesus. Spurgeon was a product of his master. Now, this is not to hold up a man as an idol and say, let us bow to him, but rather I mean to use the life of Spurgeon in an illustrative way. He too was wrought with sin and in need of the same grace you and I need, but that's not my point. My point is that Spurgeon is not always the case. If I could ask you this question now, and hopefully it sits with you throughout the rest of our time, do you declare what you know to be true, but declare it with emotional apathy towards it. See, you can have a mind for Christ and not a heart. You can have a feeling for Jesus, but not a mind or action. You can have charitable deeds on your hands, but not have a mind or a heart connected to Christ. You may be in a place where you do not live reflecting the truth. You declare with accuracy and fidelity and not feel its power and weight as it tumbles in your head. This is the danger of intelligence. It can be dispassionate. It can be without action. I tell you this because Jesus was not like that. Jesus was not like this. Nor are those who truly and fully follow him. Jesus was passionate. He knew what was true, and that brought emotion to him, and that emotion fueled his actions. He cares for those who are his and cares for those who would soon to be his. And because so, those who follow him are like him in that they are not only truth tellers, they are doers of the truth. They not only speak justice, but do justice. They not only think of mercy, but they know mercy, act mercy. They not only speak of loving your neighbor, they do love their neighbor. Because Jesus is the real thing. 
Jesus loved, he taught, he did. And he didn't do it dispassionately or without feeling. No, he did it with full kingly authority. And our text this morning is really sort of a larger section in what Mark is trying to communicate with these different examples. So if you were thinking of this like a, like a TV series, this is like part one of the season finale of season one. You ever seen shows do that? Sometimes they break the, the finale across a few episodes. Well, this is that. This is like part one of the season one finale. Look at verse 21. We see our first point, authority in his word. And they went to Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were so astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So after Jesus calls these four disciples, which is where we were two weeks ago, after he calls these four disciples, they head over to Capernaum. It's understood that the move here was a long-term stay. Some scholars think that Jesus owned a home here. Most scholars agree that Jesus lived in Peter's house. The point is, is that he took residence here and that Capernaum sort of became a base of operations. Capernaum was a small, though successful fishing village. It had uh, a quite a decent-sized port. It had a Roman colony that was friendly to the Jews. Uh, they had a, a market that was full of traders. And most importantly, they had a synagogue there, which means that there was enough Jews to require that. I like to think of our little community here as sort of Capernaum. They were small, but they were strong. If you were to visit it today, you would see the ruins of the synagogue that is built on top of the synagogue in our story here. Now, the synagogue is not to be confused with the temple. The temple was a place of worship. The synagogue was a place of teaching. The synagogue was a place where the Holy Scriptures were, at that time, the Torah and some of the Old Testament prophet works were orated aloud and commented on. That's kind of the thing that they would do. They would just get together and, you know, a rabbi or a scribe would get up here and say, boom, 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 boom. Here's what that means. The synagogues were a small gathering place. But Jesus shows up and these scribes, they, they don't see him as a rabbi like the disciples do. They don't see him as a teacher like the disciples do. In fact, later on in Mark, they will comment on Jesus to each other saying, isn't that the carpenter's boy? They know the stock, the station from which Jesus comes from. He didn't have the vocation. He didn't have the schooling. He was a poor carpenter and they knew that. But Jesus comes in here and he starts teaching. Jesus communicates not just with passion and conviction, but with authority. Now, the word authority here is translated two ways. It's original, like uh, uh, out of original stuff, and power. The people in the synagogue were listening to him teach. They were marveled. They were stunned. They were shocked. And the reactions, partly because of who Jesus was This man was not clearly supposed to be teaching as a rabbi or a scribe. scribe. He was not a traditional rabbi, but he taught with more authority than even them. 
and even more than the scribes who were above the rabbis and teachers. Kent Hughes puts it, and I see the irony here, so you feel free to giggle. Kent Hughes puts it, scribes who were largely Pharisees were in bondage to quotation marks. They love to quote the authorities. I see what I did there, okay? These men, these scribes, they had secondhand theology. They just regurgitated what the next great teacher, the next great thinker said. Their teachings were not original to them. All they had was information. You would go to a synagogue and a teacher or a rabbi or a scribe, they would get up here and they would say, well, this per John says this and Peter says that and, 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 and Joe says this and Jimmy says that about what Joe said. And none of it is original to them. Rather, it's just regurgitated information. It's knowledge. It's minds that are devoted to the teaching. Their authority was in title alone. But see, that's where Jesus is different. And this is Mark's emphasis. You know of leaders and teachers. You know of kings and presidents. You know of leaders and rulers. But they pale in comparison to Jesus. They can't hold a candle to his light. Jesus spoke with authority. The scribes, the elite, could not even obtain because Jesus' message was original. He didn't speak with reference to what so-and-so said. He spoke the truth with shocking power, clarity, and conviction. He didn't tell you what the rabbi said. He told you what he said. Notice the contrast here, family. This is stoic knowledge against joy-filled truth. This is stodgy fact-giving versus passionate declarations of life-giving truth. This is the opinions of others against the blueprint. Where in your life have you leaned on worldly knowledge against the knowledge of God? Where in your life have you chosen the, the, the message of teachers and rulers and authorities other than the authority of King Jesus. The reality is, though, that this isn't our every day. Every day we are not captivated. Every day we are not marveled. Every day we are not filled with the same passion, the same zeal, the same fervor we had yesterday. Sometimes, if I can speak illustratively, sometimes we wake up and we take our jug of water that we are ready to give out to the people and we shake it and find that it is empty. Some days our fragility and our weaknesses are made more apparent to us. Some days we don't have the trust in Jesus' words. We don't have the submission to his authority, the longing for more of his words. Some days we are aware of just how thirsty we are. In those moments, family, I encourage you to throw yourself on Christ even more. 
to cast your emptiness on him and trust that he will truly fill you up again to cast yourself on our king because he will supply all of your needs. He will give you the grace. He will give you the power. He will give you the passion to give water to the thirsty and be water to the wandering. The disciples, as we should right now, learned from Jesus' example. They saw before them the words of Jesus in full authority and power. These men will remember this day and many days like this because we see in Mark 16 that after the Lord leaves them, it says they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. These men saw Jesus going before them and were empowered by the same spirit to teach with a piece of the same authority of the one who has all authority. Jesus is contagious like that. Here's what I love, and I'll test if you're awake this morning. Jesus's authority is not limited to his word. You might still be asleep. Jesus's authority is not limited to his word. No, Jesus's authority is action bound as well. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As Jesus is teaching, a man with an unclean spirit interrupts him. The teachings of Jesus, the truth that was declared that day, was too much for the spirit to be in the presence of. It's like darkness when light is shown in its space. The shadows, they run, they hide. And so this spirit could not stand in the shining light of Jesus' presence. But notice, family, that the spirit's reaction to the light was not outright fleeing. It was violent rebellion. It was attack on the peacefulness of the moment. This was not a passive-aggressive exchange of words. This was a spectacle because, the, because it, the Spirit, knew that the one who could defeat it, the one who could cast it out, the one who could get rid of it, the one who, though it doesn't want to be submissive to the authority, has no choice but to be submissive to the authority, was in its presence. May this show us, family, that where there is truth that brings light, Darkness cannot hide from it. There is no place for evil in the kingdom of God. No shadow is cast in the brilliant light of Jesus. This is the incompatibility of opposing forces. Perfect light cast, all, cast out all darkness. John in his gospel in chapter 8 verse 12 says that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh, church, come and see that your sin is made uncomfortable 
comfortable in the light. Come and see that when darkness meets the light, it is not relieved. It is not appreciative. It is not immediately healed. It is not immediately submissive. It does not want the light to be shined on. It only craves. It only thrives in the darkness. Examine yourselves, family. Where have you not allowed the light of Christ to penetrate the darkest spaces of your heart? Where are you rebellious to the light shining on your sin? A few weeks ago, I got Instagram got. It basically means I spent entirely too long on the app. I was on the explore button, which for me is usually just like sports highlights and interviews and funny clips. And so that's what happened. I was watching this interview. And if you're not paying attention, another video will just come right up. Right. So that's what happened. I was watching it. It was good. And then another video came up and I was watching it. It was good. And then another video came up and then another video. And then I found this video and I was enthralled. I was glued. I watched the video like 12 times. (laughs) What it is, is this guy hangs out. He's actually pretty popular, so you may have seen this. He hangs out in grocery store parking lots, and he waits to see people who don't put the grocery shopping cart back where it goes. You know how grocery stores in the parking lot, they have the aisle for you to put the grocery cart back in the place so that the people can come pick it up and bring it back into the store. It's called cart knocks. (laughs) So good. So what he would do is he would just wait. He would just walk around in this like fake police officer outfit with a flashlight in the middle of the day. And he would just walk around (laughs) and he would find these people who parked right next to where the shopping cart goes, but still mounted on the curb. And he would come up to them. He would very politely say, hey, could you could you please put the cart like right here? And he would just do that over and over. Hey, hey, could you please, would you, would you please move the shopping cart? Like, it's literally right behind you. Like, it would take you five seconds. Just put it back where it goes. Some people would just leave it, like, in the middle of the street. And he would be like, hey, could you please move that? That's dangerous, right? Like, what, what got me was the reaction. People hated, hated that he was doing this. And he's coming to them politely. Hey, um... That, that doesn't go there. It goes here. Would you do that? And they, they would start off soft. Like, they would be like, nah, I'm in a hurry. And he would be like, in the time it took you to tell me that you were in a hurry, you could have put the car back. <laughs> like, it, 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 they would hate it. And, and the more aggressive that they got, the more annoying he became. I would tell you how, but I don't want you to only remember the things that he would do. I want you to remember the moral of the story. <laughs> I mean, he's had guns pulled out on him. He's been cussed out. I mean, people just don't like to be told they did something wrong. And and, and that's what got me. That's why I spent so long watching this video, because at first I was laughing. But then I began to look and I began to see like a thread in the responses of the people to him. They would say things like, you can't tell me what to do. That would say things like, it's a free country. That would say things like, I don't have to listen to you. That would say things like, you don't get to tell me what to do. I don't have to do it. That would say things like, so what? And he would say, it's not about me telling you what to do. It's about doing what's right. 
But this is where it got me. He said one time, as someone was cussing him out, he said, I'm just shedding light on your laziness. Family, may you see the silliness of putting away the shopping carts in this ridiculous illustration. As a serious question to ask yourself, what is my posture when my sin is brought to the light? What is my reaction when my sin is exposed? What is my response when light shines in the room? Because I urge you, brothers and sisters, shine the light on your sin. Do not feed it more darkness. And when you feel the aggressive desire for your sin to be nurtured in the darkness that you can give it, throw yourself into the light. Well, how do I do that, pastor? Well, live in the light of God's word. Live in submission to this to his authority. In community group a few weeks ago, I read this text and I want to read it again. If you would consider it a bookmark verse in the life of our church here at Crosspoint, it's 1 John 1 verses 5 through 9. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is the light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John makes this clear that to walk in the light of Christ is not to walk in darkness, yet we are still in sin. So how do we fight the darkness of sin? Confess. Confess. Bring the darkness to the light. Confession is to shine a light into the darkest places of sin's hold because it cannot exist there. And here's the thing. You'll feel, you'll feel every temptation to not confess. You'll make every excuse not to do it. You'll convince yourself that bondage is better than freedom. Oh, church, but do not believe that lie Walk in the light. Walk and live in the light of your brothers and sisters in the faith. Live in the light of God's word that casts all darkness away. Live completely in the light of Christ. Let's go back to Mark. Verse 27. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. There was no doubt, no doubt in the room that Jesus spoke with authority, that he possessed authority. But this situation proved to witness, and by extension us, Jesus holds the supreme authority over all things. His 
walk matched the talk. His deeds matched the words. Although Mark doesn't record what happened after the casting out of that demon, many scholars and even myself believe that the man was brought salvation. Here's why. Jesus' divine mercy extends far beyond empathy for our physical sufferings. I am convinced the loving kindness of God means he is concerned with and for our temporal, earthly, physical welfare. But I am equally convinced, family, that it is infinitely more than that, too. Jesus' compassion and sympathy for earthly deliverance is pointing to spiritual deliverance. The work of Christ is always ultimately redemptive. As one commentator says, our Lord's tenderest mercies are concerned primarily with the salvation of our souls, not merely the suffering of our bodies. When Jesus cast the demon out of the man, it brought to him not only a physical deliverance, but a spiritual one. You see, sin has made all of us sick. We are all bound to the bondage of sin and the consequences of it. We are spiritually dead. And only Jesus has the power and the authority to save us from our sin condition, to wake us up out of the darkness and to bring us into his light. This is the kingly power of Jesus that he supplies us with the deliverances we truly need. Deliverance from sin and death that presides over us. That is your king. That is how mighty. That is how lovely. You and I do not deserve the love of God. We do not deserve the mercy we experience every day to feel the breeze on our face, to feel the sun's warmth on our skin. Our sin demands death, but you and I are very much alive. Family, God is calling to you this morning, if you have not placed your trust in him, to come to him. He is calling you to himself, to be a disciple, to not only witness, to, his, to be a witness of his grace, but to be a partaker of it. Come into his home this morning. But may this also show us that no one, no one, is too far from the grace of God. Can you imagine the community of people surrounding the demon-possessed man? Can you imagine the convulsing, the noise-making? Be honest with yourself. Don't lie. Most, if that happened here, most of you wouldn't return next week. We'll stop going to community group for less than that. Can you imagine? The family, you were not the same. Or you were not far from being the same. You and I. Although we didn't have an unclean spirit to us, you and I once spoke in unclean ways. You and I once spoke in unclean ways. You and I once thought uncleanly. You and I once behaved in unclean ways. You and I partook in unclean things. We are not that far off from the man. This man, God still got him in the end. 
God still got him in the end. The beauty of his grace is this. God will get his children. God will get his children. This man had an unclean spirit in him and he interrupted the Holy One of God in fear. It knew that Jesus would be the end of it, that Jesus would deliver that man if, uh, from and to himself and, and that spirit would be destroyed. Family, nobody is too messed up for grace. Imagine the disciples who are now following Jesus full time. And witnessing this moment, it secures any doubt that they were also under the authority of Christ. They were also struck by his teachings. They too marveled at his works. And we'll see in later chapters that they too will heal and cast out and preach. They will exemplify the same authority of their king. The same is true of us. I call you this morning to see the kingly authority of Jesus and be confident in it. Be struck by the power of his word. Be marveled at the beauty of his work. Remember the truest authoritative action in crushing sin and killing death's power over his children to redeem them by his grace and mercy and carry them into joy-filled, passionate people who proclaim his word and deeds and do the marvelousness of Christ to other people as well. I pray this over you, church. Receive this. With ears to hear it this morning. For the unbeliever I tell you today. God is calling you to submit to this kind of authority. And for the believer I tell you. God is calling you to trust it again.